This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in August of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Michael Finkel's book, The Art Thief, chronicles one of the most outrageous crime sprees in history. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, Stefan Breitweiser stole more than, uh, from more than 200 museums and galleries across Europe, amassing a collection worth an estimated $2 billion. He never resorted to violence. His audacious thefts all occurred during daylight hours, most with the aid of his girlfriend and Catherine Kleinklaus, who served as lookout. And unlike nearly every other art thief, Breitweiser did not steal for money. He displayed his treasures in a secret lair where he and his girlfriend could admire them. Yet even more astounding than his crimes are his spectacular events that brought everything crashing down. The Art Thief, based on a series of exclusive interviews with Breitweiser, the first he's ever granted to an American journalist, details a riveting story of love, crime, and an insatiable hunger to possess beauty at uh, any cost. So we bring in now for the hour, uh, Michael Finkel. Thanks for joining us. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. I uh, should note, uh, you've you've lived in various places, I think, now in Utah. I'm now uh, pulled up stakes and, uh, you know, from France, where I did the reporting for this, and I'm living in Park City, Utah, for the last two years with my wife and my three teenage children. All right. Well, glad to have you in Utah. Um, Thank you. So, um, th- this is a spectacular story. Um, as, I think you know, I was uh, listening to a different interview you gave. Uh, you say if Breitweiser were American, he'd have four movies about him now. Um, why do you think this hasn't been more well-known? A couple of reasons. So first, let's stress that uh, you know what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, seems extraordinary, but it's 100% true. This is nonfiction, not based on truth, not 99% true, but a, an actual uh, true story. And Breitweiser himself, the art thief, was born in 1971, so this isn't any historical reenactment, but actually living, you know, current history. Breitweiser is French. He's from the northeastern part of France, uh, called the Alsace region, which is where France, Switzerland, and Germany all meet. And we spoke to each other in French. His English is uh, quite weak, and that's probably the main reason why his story is not known over here in the United States. If he was English-speaking, I think he'd be doing a tour of uh, of all the TV news shows and would be quite a well-known character, or he might be in jail for life, depending upon uh, the way the cards fell. Hmm. Um, uh, so uh, you, had to, you had to do quite a bit of work to, to reach him, I think, right? And, uh, and you, you did finally gain access to him. I think if you were going to describe my working process in one word or less, Tom, it would be uh, inefficient. I worked on this book, which is not a very thick book, just over 200 pages. I worked on this for 11 years. Bright Weiser, as you mentioned in your very kind introduction, had never spoken to an American journalist before, scarcely spoke to any journalist. Um, I started just by writing him a simple letter. He had published a ghost-written uh, memoir written in French, and I sent it through his publishing company. And we spent four years writing letters back and forth to each other, becoming increasingly slightly more friendly. And eventually, Breitweiser agreed to meet me for lunch. At this point, as I mentioned, I was living in France with my family. It had nothing to do with the art thief and everything to do with wanting my children to learn another language and experience another culture. We met for lunch. I wasn't even allowed to bring a pen or a notebook or a recorder to lunch. And after a long uh, French lunch, Breitweiser finally agreed, I guess maybe my 
my bad French accent either entertained him enough or he thought uh, he'd rather speak to an American journalist than a, than a European one for whatever reasons. And I think I, I think he likes Americans is the reason. And uh, after, after our lunch, he agreed to uh, be interviewed, and we spent more than 50 hours together, including some, this is like some of the strangest things that have ever happened in my journalistic career. I went into museums with the world's greatest art thief and talk about a moral conundrum. Uh, uh, it even got that far. He let me see his uh, psychology reports, gave me all the interviews, went to museums and explained to me exactly how he was able to steal $2 billion worth of art. Hmm. Um, at one point I was reading an interview that, um, you asked him, well, how, how could he do this? So audacious daylight hours, right? Right in front of uh, people. And, uh, he, and then he produced your laptop. <laughs> so, yes, when I, when I look for a good topic for a book, I, I, you know, I seek a sort of, uh, a character that you can either dislike or like, but it's not entirely clear. And Brightweiser seems to fall into that category, even after working on this book for more than a decade. At this moment, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about Stefan Breitweiser. There's some respect for sure, and there's some measure of disgust. I mean, I'm not a billionaire. Uh, Tom, I know how uh, radio and, uh, and print journalism seem to be about the same uh, level of, uh, you know, of a remuneration here. So I bet you're not a billionaire. And so we don't get to see uh, great works of art unless we go to a museum. And it's one of the great public goods of the world. I think we could, we could talk about uh, what's wrong with modern society from now until next summer. But museums are one of the wonderful things of modern society for a, a relatively modest amount of money. We can, we can go see uh, some priceless works. And Brightweiser, by taking these works off the wall, sort of was a cancer on that public trust. But at the same time, he did it in such a way during the day, sometimes with guards and people in the room, sort of like a, a street magician. And uh, during one of our interviews, which took place in, I don't know if anybody of your listeners have traveled in France, but hotel rooms there tend to be really small, as in like walk-in closet size small. And Brightweiser, wanting to avoid the public spotlight, preferred to be interviewed privately in, in tiny hotel rooms. And um, one time I'm asking him, like, you know, how, how is it possible, Stefan, that you're able to steal a work of art when people are in the room, when guards are right there? And he looks at me and he said, uh, did you see what I just did? And I guess during a moment that I had lowered my eyes to write down a note, I usually maintain eye contact and tape record, uh, digital record my interviews, he had taken my laptop from my hotel room, stuck it in the small of his back, and was just sitting there as if nothing had happened, and I hadn't noticed what he'd done. He stands up and he shows me what he had, how he had taken my laptop, and I understood how he was able to steal while people are in the room. Sort of a, like I said, sort of a, a David Blaine-ish street, street magician, sort of pickpockety method of stealing, but no violence, never carried a gun, never had so much as a threat of violence. None of those, you know... Um, uh, Mission Impossible sort of uh, skylight entries that you might be thinking of because those are movie hard heists. This was a real art thief who not only succeeded once, twice, three times, but more than 200 times before he was finally caught. I want to get into, uh, uh, you know, some of these, I don't know what you call them, heists, uh, thefts. Um, yeah, but, I, I, I love the word heist. It sort of gives it a little bit of, yeah, there's yeah. thefts, there's this, but, I, I, you know, heist is sort of like that that funny sort of expression where it's like you kind of against your better judgment are rooting for the bad guy. I, I, I kind of like the word heist. 
Before we do that, I want to kind of loop back in his, his history. What, uh, what do you think first sparked his, uh, his urge to steal? Now, as I mentioned on the outset, this is nonfiction. It's not a novel, so I can't really delve too deeply into exactly, you know, one's motivations. But having spent 11 years working on the project, I bet I have some insight. Breitweiser grew up in a fairly wealthy family in northeastern France. His father had a fantastic art collection uh, that he had inherited. And his parents had a pretty terrible breakup when he was a teenager. And his father left the family and took everything that he had inherited with him, didn't leave one piece behind. These were pieces that young Stefan Breitweiser, the person who had become the greatest art thief, these are things that he loved. He said at first his thefts were sparked because he wanted to replace some of the things that his father had removed from the house. I don't 100% believe it. It might be true for... The first crime he took uh, was a antique flintlock pistol from the 1700s, very similar to one his father had, except way more valuable and much better. But after a couple of thefts, he had a collection, Breitweiser had a collection that was worth well more than anything his father had ever owned, and that was just a drop in the bucket compared to how big it eventually got. So maybe the breakup was the trigger, but really, let's be honest, uh, Tom, he not only loved acquiring artwork, and he will talk about this, I'm sure he never sold a piece, he stuck them in his attic room, but I think he also enjoyed getting away with the thefts and sort of the excitement of uh, of walking out a museum with a priceless object. So the exact motivations are a little opaque, but I try to explore them uh, at some length in, in the book. But it starts, of course, it starts, of course, with an interfamily uh, disagreement. Um, uh, quoting from the book here, you're talking about Breitweiser. Uh, he believes he's a literal seer, one of the chosen few who can perceive the true beauty of things. Um, tell me a little bit more about that, his, his explanation of himself and, and how he perceives art and why he wanted this to, to surround him. Yes, as I, was, as I was saying, there's, I mean, I'm going to talk about Breitweiser as, uh, as non-judgmentally as possible, but as I said, your, your listeners could be like, uh, this is someone that's just sort of interesting, or this is someone who's sort of a repulsive, and that both of those make for a good character in a book. Breitweiser believed, that doesn't mean I believe it, but Breitweiser believed that he had a special connection with the works of art that attracted him. Now, 99% of the pieces of art, just like me and you when you walk through a museum, aren't your favorites. But when he encountered a specific work that just, he used the French expression, coup de coeur, gave him a hit to his heart, a blow to his heart, and these tended to be late Renaissance and early Baroque oil paintings, and that is the 1600s and 1700s, so extraordinarily valuable, amazingly vivid oil paintings. When he saw something that he loved in a museum, he thought he had a connection with it that was more powerful than anybody else's and somewhat convinced himself that he deserved to take it because as he explained to me, <laughs> again, I'm not agreeing with him, but it's one of Breitweiser's sort of twisted quotes. He said to me, Mike, museums are prisons for art. And, you know, he said, let me explain, you know, there's no comfortable place to sit down in front of a, a work of art. You can't, you're, you know, you're being jostled often by other people. You can't see it at night. You can't have a sip a glass of wine. You can't run your fingers over the ridges of paint and feel the three-dimensionality of an oil painting. And so he had this 
He wasn't a, a true esthete, someone who loved art, even his own psychologist. And Breitweiser gave me signed, written permission to read his psychology reports. Even his own psychologist, although they disparaged him, called this guy again like a cancer on society and, you know, an, uh, a, a thief that's unstoppable. They all admitted that he truly loved the pieces he stole and was not motivated. This sets him apart from almost every other art thief, was not motivated by money, but by beauty, which, which is a pretty fascinating idea unto itself. And that is quite unusual, right? Um, most art thieves are in it for the money. In fact, uh, you write that uh, Breitweiser despises, what the, the, <laughs> I guess the, those are art thieves. I don't know what he considers himself. <laughs> in one of our amusing interchanges, uh, Breitweiser said to me in French, but I'll, I'll translate here, that I hate being called an art thief, he said. And I said, you know, of course, I asked him, well, why do you hate being called an art thief? He wasn't denying that he was perhaps the most prolific art thief who had ever lived, 50, 50-something-year-old person still with us today, the most, the most uh, prolific of all time. And he said, well, you know, the art thieves that you're thinking of, those gentlemen art thieves like Ocean's Eleven or Thomas Crown Affair, those are not real art thieves. That's fiction. Real art thieves. And I said, Name a real art theft you might think of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, 1990, a celebrated theft that hasn't been uh, solved. But those two men that committed that crime, they broke into the museum at night, they attacked the night guards, they bound their faces with duct tape, handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. So already violence, but this is not why Breitweiser hated this crime. It's what they did next. They marched up these gardener thieves in Boston, to the most magnificent work in the museum, a Rembrandt painting, and stuck a knife in the canvas and shredded the edge of the canvas until it was released from its frame. They basically destroyed a Rembrandt trying to steal it. Breitweiser would never harm a work of art. He carefully removed a frame. He would protect the paintings that he stole, like as if it was a newborn baby. And so Breitweiser thought... Being called an art thief was being lumped in with barbarians, as he called them, like the gardener thieves. And so I asked him, of course, so, Stefan, what would you like to be called? And I will not forget his answer. He said to me, I would like to be known as an art collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. <laughs> yeah, there, there, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of self-delusion, I guess, uh, there. You could call it yes, the mark yeah. of a the mark of a criminal, but also mm-hmm. at the same time, sort of entertaining, fascinating, and mind blowingly odd. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to give away too much and you know, preserve some of the surprise for people who haven't read the book. Um, but through a series of circumstances, at least some of the the art that uh, that Breitweiser stole ended up uh, being destroyed. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him about that you know that that's one thing he despised about those other art thieves right but in the end uh some of the art that he uh stole uh you know was was harmed i mean like any good icarus story the closer you fly to the sun the harder you're going to crash and over this we're talking about a period from the late from the mid 1990s to the mid 2000s For more than seven years, Breitweiser averaged one art theft every 12 days, which is almost impossible to get your your head around. I mean, most art thieves plan a heist 
for months and months and months. And if they pull off one or two in a lifetime, it's considered fairly impressive. And Brightwater is doing one every 12 days. And I do want to add one other thing in here that, that relates to the ending. It's not this book. The reason why I really adored working on this project is it's not just a series of thefts that could get a little bit cold and repetitive, but really there is a love story shot through the center of this book. Breitweiser's accomplice for almost all of his crimes was, as you mentioned at the introduction, her name was Anne Catherine Kleinklaus. It was his girlfriend. These two were lovers. They slept in a room surrounded with these works of art that they stole. Uh, again, an estimated an estimate of up to $2 billion worth of art, and they had this antique four-poster bed in the middle of these rooms. Now, where were these rooms? They were in Breitweiser's mother's house in a nondescript suburb of sort of a hard-scrabble town in eastern France. And so there's the mother, the girlfriend, and Breitweiser, and it was a crazy love triangle. Breitweiser and his girlfriend truly loved each other. Breitweiser and his mother had a strong bond that one could call love, but it was a dangerous sort of love. And when, as I mentioned before, Breitweiser did fly too close to the sun, when his wings melted, when he was finally had the police hot on his tail, it, were the, it was the two women in his life, his girlfriend and his mother, who, let's just say, got rid of the evidence in the most heartbreaking way imaginable. Yeah, it is truly heartbreaking. By the way, Anne Catherine, um, later on, um, she alleges abuse. Do you, do, you, do you think this was a true love affair? I think that's a really interesting question, Tom, and I'll try and unpack it without taking up too much time. Um, I was not able to interview Anne Catherine, and that was uh, smart on her part because she more or less gets away with the crimes by, let's just say it as it is, by perjuring herself, by lying in court that she had nothing to do with it, where there is video evidence that she was part of it. However, those videos were not unearthed until after her trial. And it was her boyfriend, Breitweiser, who helped her get away with it, who said, no, 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 she had nothing to do with it, despite there being ample video evidence and surveillance video showing both of them stealing multiple times. Part of her uh, defense was uh, saying that she was subject to, subject to both psychological and physical abuse, and I do explore that a little bit in the book. There is no way that I would recommend Breitweiser to be anybody's boyfriend. Um, he was truly, besides being obsessed with art, obsessed with stealing and just, you know, a criminal through and through. And so, yes, I think that there was some amount of abuse, uh, Breitweiser, just by, just by dating a, a, theft, a thief of his renown, you're definitely going down a rabbit hole of trouble. And um, Anne-Catherine is fortunate to no longer be with him. But wow, what a 10-year what a sort of Bonnie and Clyde type spree that ended with a spectacularly horrific uh, implosion. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, hear about some of these heists or, or thefts. This is the the, uh, the the methods they used were just um, uh, you know simple but astounding. Um, we're talking with Michael Finkel about his new book, The Art Thief. By the way, The Art Thief is on our latest UPR community book list. Book li- books that we're recommending. Uh, we'll have more following this uh, break. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the author, Michael Finkel. You can find him at michaelfinkel.com. By the way, at that website, uh, you can uh, see some of the arts uh, that was uh, stolen, uh, some spectacular art, uh, some pictures of uh, Stefan Breitweiser as well um, at uh, michaelfinkel.com. The book is The Art Thief, chronicles one of the most outrageous crime sprees in history in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Stefan Breitweiser, uh, m- most of these heists with uh, the aid of his girlfriend and, and Katrine uh, Kleinklaus, um, stole from more than 200 museums and galleries across Europe, amassing a collection worth an estimated uh, $2 billion, which they uh, squirreled away in, in the attic room where they lived. Um, so uh, the uh, I think the methods that they, they hit upon are, you know, simple, but uh, would obviously very, very effective. They decided, well, if you don't act like a thief, then people are not going to suspect you. T- tell us a little bit about uh, some of these, uh, these heists or thefts. Right. How does uh, two young people, they started stealing when they were 23 years old, 24 years old, and they ended up in the, they finally ended their spree when they were in their mid-30s, so they were very young. But how do you get away? with more than 200 museum crimes, and sometimes they stole multiple pieces, more than 300 works of art. Well, you don't cut through a skylight, you don't throw smoke bombs and bust out your Uzi. How did they enter a museum? Breitweiser and Anne Catherine always dressed stylishly. They bought. The, they didn't have very much money. They uh, had perhaps $2 billion worth of art, but since they didn't sell it, they were more or less broke. Uh, they bought their clothing in secondhand shops, but it was always fancy designer clothing. And how do you get into a museum? Well, you just buy a ticket at the front desk, buy it with cash, don't put a credit card down, and just walk in. And Breitweiser only stole works of arts that grabbed his heart. He said, it, he actually said that stealing art for money is dumb. There are plenty of easier ways to make money, but stealing for the love of something, something that would cost millions and millions of dollars that he could never afford, well, that was ecstatic. He would find a piece that he loved. Now, it had to be of a certain size and protected, you know, usually in an out-of-the-way gallery or room of a museum. I mentioned how he hated that the Isabella Stewart Gardner thieves put a knife in a canvas. He would put Anne Catherine, his girlfriend, at the entrance to the gallery. He liked to steal from galleries that only had one doorway in and out, so it's easier to um, protect himself. And she would, their, their grand signal, you mentioned simplicity, was just, <clears throat> just a brief cough. If she made a cough like that, he would stop whatever he was doing and pretend to be looking at a work of art, whether it was a tourist or a guard that would come in. He would remove a frame from the wall before stealing it. Now, Breitweiser worked in a frame shop to learn exactly how frames are attached to works of art. He also worked as a museum guard and learned exactly what museum guards, how how security works in a museum and how a museum guard, after just a few days on the job, stops really noticing the work on the wall and really concentrates on people. So a lot of psychological acumen. He would remove a frame very carefully. He would often hide it in another room or the same gallery in a museum for a work like a sculpture that was in a display case. Now, if you're picturing a museum display case, you're picturing like maybe a plexiglass cube or a rectangle, you know, filled with, that's glassed in. And these cases, the sliding door on them, are locked with modern lots that are very difficult to pick. However, Breitweiser's only weapon, the only tool he ever used, was a small Swiss Army knife that he kept stashed in a pocket. And instead of 
trying to pick a lock, what he would do is he would take the sharpest blade of a Swiss Army knife, and where the panels of a display case are connected, they're usually sealed with silicon glue. And all he would do is, like a surgeon, cut along these um, these silicon glued sort of um, joints and be able to pull apart the panels of a display case just enough so that he could snake his hand through, steal the object of his desire, pull the, pull the piece out, put it at the small of his back, cover it with his shirt or jacket, push the panels together that he had sliced open, and the force of the panels would just hold themselves together. It looked like nobody had been in the case, that the lock was still untouched, and walk slowly out of a museum. Very simple, but also incredibly daring. One glance from one guard or one person would end his career and yet would end his basically his free life. And yet he was able to keep going for hundreds of thefts. He was just sort of like a, uh, he just had this ability as one of the detectives told me, he just had this weird ability to blend into a room. He was like a skinnyish, smallish guy and just was sort of like unnoticeable in plain sight, for lack of a better phrase, and uh, able to. He, he he explained to me his some of his thefts, not just with um, detailed description, but as I mentioned earlier, we went to a few museums together, and he reenacted some of his thefts for me, beat by beat. How he unscrewed screws to free a you know work from a wall. How he snapped a frame off. How he cut the silicon seals and where he walked and his escape routes. And um, even on, this makes me laugh, even after he gets out of a museum and gets into his car, you know, even little things like don't go screeching away like they do in the movies. The last thing you want after when you have a stolen multi-million dollar work of art in your car is to get pulled over for speeding. You know, so his getaway drives, quote unquote, would be very slow, stopping at yellow lights just to make sure. And um, then he would carry the piece up to his attic and hang it on the wall and join his girlfriend in, in the four poster bed in the, in the attic room. And, and that would be his sort of, his whole life was revolving around adding to his illegal collection. I was interested to learn that uh, one of these uh, thefts, um, they used an index card that the, the, it was in a different display from the one he wanted to, to, to take uh, something from. But it, he really is very valuable because, because it said uh, this art is out for cataloging, or I'm, I'm not sure what it said. That's probably, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is possibly my favorite of, it's hard to say the word favorite. The theft that most impressed me, um, Tom, was, yes, it was at the Museum of Art and History in Brussels, Belgium, a huge museum like the size of the Louvre in Paris, one of the most, one of the biggest museums in Europe. He walks in. I told you that Breitweiser only stole things that he loved, but he passes by a display case in the medieval room at this museum. And Breitweiser did not like medieval artwork. He thought it was a little too, uh, didn't have the joy that he liked, which came later in the Renaissance and the Baroque era. But he sees in this display case, not art that he likes, but this index card that's folded in half. And this display case seems to have a lot of blank spaces in it, as if a thief had already been there. And this card says, in French, it says simply, objects removed for study. And I mentioned to you how Breitweiser would do what he called the silicon slice, slice along the uh, edges of where the 
the panels of the display case were sealed. So he does his silicon slice, sticks his hand through this display case in the medieval room, and steals only the index card. Then he makes his way to the Renaissance room and sees this enormous display case filled with his, well, second favorite thing. He liked oil paintings, first of all, but secondly, he loved solid silver goblets and uh, amazing wine glasses and beer tankards. And he saw this case filled with amazing silver that he absolutely loved. He did his silicon slice thing again, stole a couple of pieces. Now, sometimes after he stole from a display case, he would rearrange the objects in it so that they seemed to be, there was no blank spot, so that a guard casually passing by would not see an opening or a blank spot in the case. In this instance with the silver, he stole a bunch of pieces, and instead of moving things around, he simply put that card, objects removed for study, inside the case, pushed the panels back together, and walked out of the museum. The next day, he's thinking, I wonder... And he and his girlfriend returned to the museum. It turns out no one had reported the crime. The objects removed for study card is still in this display case. He pulls apart the panels again, steals more pieces, walks out of the museum again, waits a week, thinks to himself, I wonder if it's really possible. Returns to the museum in Belgium, notices that the card, objects removed for study, is still there, more than a week later, no one has reported the crime. Everyone thinks that uh, some, science, some scientist or some researcher or art historian is just studying these objects, empties out the case and drives home with 11 priceless silver goblets and centerpiece decorations, an amazing solid silver warship, or a, a, a boat that was uh, you know, uh, filled with cannons and sails, all in solid silver, and the case is empty, and there's just a card in there, and he tells me, uh, Mike, the greatest art-stealing tool of all time is a folded-in-half index card. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, the other thing that struck me is uh, they would they would greet the guards, right, coming in and, and going out. Um, they would just act like regular museum goers. That's uh, part of the method. I think you mentioned earlier that uh, you know their methods were not just I mean, they're simple, but they're also extraordinarily bold. And he, Breitweiser had this bizarre theory that, you know, I mean, if you get away with 200 crimes without getting caught, you're probably a pretty good thief. And uh, one of his ideas was that something that an art thief would never do is exactly what you should consider doing. For example... One time, you know, when a museum piece is stolen, there's often, it's often discovered very quickly, alarms sounded, police coming. More than once, after stealing a priceless object, what Breitweiser and Anne Catherine, his girlfriend, would do is something that an art thief, again, would never do. What would they do? They would steal something. Let's think about this. It's either at the small of his back or in his girlfriend's purse. And 99.9% of all art thieves would run out. Police would see someone running or see someone with a suspicious package and get them arrested. They, instead, after a crime, while the authorities are coming, would casually go to the museum cafe and eat lunch. Now, think about it. If you're a police officer responding to a call of something missing, the last people that you're going to suspect are those casually eating in the cafeteria. And that is exactly what they were able to do. For example, they would sometimes ask guards directions to a certain gallery. Now, 
anybody that's going to be so bold as to ask a guard directions to a gallery is clearly not going to be an art thief. There's no just there's just no way that that would be the case. And that is why they did it to sort of Brightweiser, while not using violence, was this master of sort of psychological manipulation and the ability to employ amazing diversionary tactics that seem simple but sort of were profoundly insightful, and this is why he was able to get away with things for so long. There's one incident where uh, he's, he's, he's finished his uh, theft, he's out in the parking lot, and he's been too cheap to pay for parking, uh, so he, he, he strikes up an argument with the with the policeman. Is is that uh, I don't know? Is is that a continuation of the, this clever method, or is that recklessness at that point? I mean, you're asking me, Tom. I would say complete recklessness. But uh, Brightweiser is a different breed of cat than uh, than I am, and I'm presuming you as well. Just this sort of you know, as they say in French, sang froid, cold blooded, like. Uh, one time we were stopped at a highway rest area on the way to a um, to visit a museum, and uh, this was in uh, Liechtenstein, and the uh, bathrooms cost less than a dollar to use, but you had to put coins in this slot to go through the turnstile, and Brightweiser just ducked under the turnstile and didn't pay. And I was just like too either embarrassed, shy, or too much of a rule follower. I'm not, I'm not a natural rule breaker to to sneak under there. I just don't have it in me to even sneak into a, you know, rest side, a, you know, a, a roadside rest area. So, like, I would never be able to get away with these crimes. I would just have sweat marks under my uh, under my arms. I would just be nervous. I, you know, everyone would just notice that I was just acting abnormally. But Breitweiser and, and Catherine had this amazing ability to just seem completely calm and normal. And, yes, he steals a piece. He's too cheap to pay for parking. In fact, when I was interviewing him, he would always say, Mike, don't pay for parking. And I, I got a couple of parking tickets, so I started paying for it. But, you know, Brightweiser, I guess if you're just a person that does not follow the rules and that's sort of ingrained in you. And the police officers giving him a ticket, right, so he, he comes back to his car. I, I, I think I would panic that there was a police person waiting for me as I had a multi-million dollar stolen work of art at the small of my back. But Brightweiser sees this police officer at his car. Rather than either hiding or being absolutely relieved that all he's getting is a parking ticket, starts arguing with the police officer and actually argues so effectively that the, that the ticket is withdrawn. By the way, that's never going to happen here on the streets of Park City. Once the dude starts writing you a ticket, I think you're, I think you're done for. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, that's just sort of like... I'm thinking about that moment, and again, it sort of fills his ethos, fulfills his ethos that that's something an art thief could never do. There's no way a thief is going to argue with a police officer with a stolen work, and it's sort of this, again, this sort of anti, this sort of psychological um, camouflage where, like, I guess a police officer would be like, there's no way that guy was really, there was the theft, he argued with me about a parking ticket, and it's sort of a, it's sort of part and parcel of his of his MO, his, the, way, the way that he worked. This seems to me, um, I don't know what you think, that uh, to be obsession, compulsion with Breitweiser. Uh, he, he, keeps, uh, he keeps going, keeps escalating. Um, it, I mean, it seems pretty obsessive to me. Right. So in the, uh, you know, the, the, the decade-plus that I worked on this book, our level of trust grew so great that Breitweiser eventually gave me signed written permission to read his psychology reports, which is, I mean, again, you have to spend a decade on something before you can 
achieve that level of trust. And so I read more than five different psychologists' analyses of Breitweiser, and it was very interesting. They all really pounded on him and called him, again, a cancer on society, uh, someone obsessed with stealing, but also all five of them said the same thing in their reports, which was interesting. They said, well, it was clear that he truly loved these works of art, that he was truly an esthete, that someone who was motivated by uh, beauty and really and truly until the very, very, very end of his crime spree never even attempted to make a dime off of anything that he stole, just hung them on his walls. But uh, he was also clearly obsessed, not just with art, but also with stealing and also with his girlfriend and also with his mother. And so, yes, an extremely, there's just no way that someone can steal from 200 museums and be anything but a outlier uh, in human behavior on many different levels. And, uh, I try to unpack that with not too many pages. Psychological analyses can be, get you lost in a thicket of, uh, of dead ends. But uh, I, try to, I try to examine a little bit of that in the book. But I think you're absolutely correct. This is a person who was obsessed with both acquiring beauty and sort of snubbing his nose at the rest of the world and getting away with audacious crimes. Well, let's take another break. We're talking with Michael Fingal about his new book, The Art Thief. Uh, when we come back, Michael, about, I want to talk about museums. There's kind of a there's there's a public trust there, right? Um, and um, I think that that's why you've called him a, a cancer on the public good. Um, so we'll we'll have more with Michael Finkel following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Michael Finkel about his uh, fascinating book, The Art Thief. And we have another uh, 10 minutes or so left in this conversation. Uh, so, Michael Finkel, um, I want to talk about this, um, about museums, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, Stefan Breitweiser uh, showed the you know, extreme vulnerability of uh, many of these uh, museums. Uh, but of course, with with art and other objects, the the public museums are there to display this beauty to the public, so that we can have access to it. Um, you, you know, these are very valuable pieces of art. Uh, for security's sake, we better to lock them in a vault. But that's not what we do. And so there's kind of a contract, I think, a public contract. Uh, we'll we'll display these things, but you, the public, you're not going to steal these. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, Breitweiser and his girlfriend uh, d- violated that uh, that trust. I wonder if we talk a little bit about um, about that vulnerability and that, and that kind of that tension between the public enjoying art and uh, and the vulnerability of that art. Right. You've hit upon a very fascinating subject that some museum curators do not want to talk about, which is that now Breitweiser and Anne-Catherine stole from very large museums and also really small local museums. This was uh, through seven countries in Europe, but we have the same things here in the United States. We have our massive big city museums and we have wonderful small town museums. Now, all museums run on the same idea, the same theory, which is that the mission of a museum is to bring you as close as possible to some of the most valuable works of art and uh, cultural treasures that we own. And you do not want to feel, when you're close to that work of art, you do not want to feel encumbered by security apparatus. You do not want to see bars over the front of the Mona Lisa. You do not want to see guards with Uzis patrolling galleries. That's not a great museum experience. 
So the reason why Breitweiser was able to get away with all this, because, I mean, art thieves, thieves have been stealing from museums since the day museums opened in the mid-1700s during the Age of Enlightenment. But the hard part about stealing art isn't necessarily taking it off the wall of the museum. It's trying to sell it. That's where you get caught. There are specialized police forces in 20 countries, including in the United States. The FBI's art crime team has 20 dedicated agents working only on art crime. They publish a 10 most wanted list of stolen art each week, just like the FBI's most wanted fugitive list. However, almost all the arrests come when a thief tries to sell it to a crooked dealer or a collector or an undercover FBI agent. Because Breitweiser and his girlfriend stole it and then hung it on his wall, the police, who were, of course, chasing them, trying to figure out who they were, uh, were looking for sales that never occurred. That's why they were able to get away with them for so long. Museums themselves, again, are always debating about, you know, how much security should we put in and how much should we allow the public to enjoy works of art? And as you mentioned, perceptively, yeah, there is a sort of pact in place. If you wanted, if we wanted to end all museum thefts, I think we could do so very easily, which was just lock the works up in a vault and put a guard in front of it. And then, of course, there would be no more museums. They would just be called banks. And so there is this sort of tension between the mission of a museum and the vulnerability of it. And we, 99.99% of us, all of us normal folks have agreed, yeah, I would like to see some of the most amazing works of art, but I am not going to touch them. I'm not going to abuse that. And I sure hope that there are not many more people like Breitweiser taking advantage of this social pact. I hope this doesn't break down and that there's no more, more museums in the next generation or so. I hope that he is a complete outlier, and I worry about that, too. Uh, the epigraph to the book is very interesting. Uh, Oscar Wilde, aesthetics are higher than ethics. Uh, why did you choose that? Well, you know, after you read that line, you really don't have to read the whole book. How's that for a sales pitch? No, I mean, Oscar Wilde, if anybody knows who he is from the uh, mid-1800s, uh, he often had a lot of pithy statements that were, well, whether he meant them seriously or as a joke, uh, or at least a little sarcastically, I'm not sure. So aesthetics are higher than ethics. If you break that down, it basically means beauty is more important than, like, the law. And to me in whatever that is, five words or less, that sort of um, condenses Breitweiser's ethos about life, that beauty is the most important thing, and if you have to break the laws to acquire it, well, that's more important to have beauty than, um, than, than uh, honesty. And whether, you know, again, as I mentioned, you know, whether you like Breitweiser or not, I try to let the reader be the jury. I don't think it's my place to tell. I respect people that read books, any books, and uh, I don't want to tell you how to feel. I want to lay down all that I've learned in 11 years and also in less than in 200 pages, so keeping it short, and let the reader be sort of the jury, how you feel about that. And that phrase, aesthetics are higher than ethics, are right there. I wonder how many readers would agree with that and how many readers would disagree with that. And So I thought it was a I don't think I just over-explained. pithy, <laughs> funny, and I also love Oscar Wilde. So mm. for all those reasons, I thought it was an appropriate um, way to enter the book and the world of the art thief. 
Where has Breitweiser himself landed? You, I, I'm not sure how recently you've talked to him, but to, does he? How does he look back on this this career? Does he does he have remorse? So I mentioned that uh, that it is sort of an Icarus story, and Breitweiser's wings certainly did melt. And after 201 thefts, we'll you know we'll, we'll let the readers explore exactly what happened. He does get caught, and as high as Breitweiser flew, and I don't think anybody took more risks and had more reward in, in all of the history of art thieving. Whew, his crash was severe, and the unfolding the last decade of his life, which I've chronicled all the way through, uh, has been one of, you know, a, ma- a person whose wings have melted and crashed to earth. He's been in and out of uh, the French penal system. The last time I saw him in person was only in March, I guess that's about four months ago, of 2023, for yet his latest trial for stealing art. Again, if you steal art in seven different countries and repeatedly, you're going to be facing a lot of different trials. Right now, he is under control of the French penal system. He's in his early 50s and probably will not be a free man for quite some time. That's the price you have to pay if you're going to take, if you're going to do what uh, Breitweiser did to his evils. Well, fascinating, fascinating story. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating read. The Art Thief, uh, it's on our UPR community book list, the books we're recommending. Uh, Michael Finkel is the author. By the way, you can go to michaelfinkel.com. Uh, to see a lot about uh, Michael Finkel's other books. And also, very interestingly, you can see uh, some of the art uh, that uh, Stefan Breitweiser uh, stole. Um, Michael Finkel, thank you so much for the conversation. Appreciate it. Well, that was uh, really fun and, uh, and enjoyable. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you so much. Skywatcher Leo T, after enjoying balmy weather lately, seeing blue skies and feeling the ocean, maybe you're out on the ocean. Watching the day evolve toward the glowing, mellow late afternoon cast. A bit later, seeing some unknown gem twinkling in the pre-dusk in the east above the snowy Wasatch. Orion emerges as the sky deepens. You may be able to get a glimpse of our closest neighboring galaxy. With no moon and a clear sky, you'll see a few thousand stars up on the Colorado Plateau or on top of the Wasatch. Or out in the red desert of Escalante. The Milky Way, meteors and satellites, all within your grasp. Sometimes Andromeda is a bit like catching a brook trout in a fast-moving mountain stream. Looking kind of like a big oblong smudgy cloud, one way to find her is to angle off the sideways W of Cassiopeia, pointing down from the two stars on the west end at about a 25 degree angle. Use your peripheral vision and sometimes binoculars help. We'll have more Finding Andromeda tips at the end of the program. Let's burn into low Earth orbit right now and catch a ride with the SpaceX launch of a Northrop Grumman freighter going to the International Space Station. It launched on January 30th. Northrop Grumman continues to design and build spacecraft for NASA since the 60s. And already out on our moon, but doing some yoga, Japan's upside-down moon lander wakes up near the Sea of Tranquility where it landed. Ten days after making the first moon landing for Japan, the moon lander is awake after arriving upside down. Mission operators with SLIM, or the Smart Lander for Investigating Moon Mission, made the first moon landing for the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency on January 19th. Solar panels, however, were in shadow and the little moon lander quickly fell silent when its batteries ran out. When the sun came up, though, good news, it re-energized the solar panels and the lander fired off a radio telemetry signal on January 28th. It's been busy ever since. 
It's one sky, many cultures. When I was lucky enough and uh, had enough experience to be a park ranger at Capitol Reef National Park, I had many interactions with people of all ages from countries all around our world. Amongst one of my duties, presenting the planets, stars, and clouds to the visitors was part of the job description. Before the nighttime sky watching session that went into the night as late as we felt like it, at the amphitheater when the evening program started, I'd often be there beforehand on the side of the amphitheater screen in the late afternoon, early dusk, catching Saturn and Mars like billiard balls near each other at a slight angle hanging in between the Fremont Canyon walls to the southwest. When the evening program was over, we led people down a trail and threw some high grass to an open area by the Fremont River near the orchards where I had set up my telescope. Many times there were mosquitoes and a nice evening breeze. In Capitol Reef, the nearby Aquarius Plateau, Boulder Mountains draw themselves into the sky and change, accentuate, or create weather. At times, sending a lone big bomber right over you, laying a few refreshing big drops on you and moving on, pulsating with heat lightning, sending out a bolt to the ground as it moved past Sulphur Creek. While enjoying the evening sky watching session, again I met visitors in the dark from all over the world or from my own neighborhood. In the dark skies, with the Milky Way sparkling overhead, folks will tell you their own little ways of finding celestial groupings. One time a girl accompanied by her little sister and mother asked me if I had ever seen the coat hanger in the sky. I laughed and she easily pointed it out to me. Sure enough, it, it is, it is the coat hanger in the sky constellation, there it is. Another time when looking at Andromeda Galaxy, or trying to find it anyway, a visitor said to me, Oh, Andromeda? Look at that blue star. Once you find that, follow it up at a slight angle straight to the third star. Here, turn to the left and look with your peripheral vision and you'll almost detect the giant smudgy cloud of a galaxy. A cocktail sword in the sky. Turn left to the third star. That's how you find Andromeda. When you're looking up, what do you see? Engage your thoughts and impressions. Think about it. Write it down. Tell me what you're seeing in the night or having hot coffee in the dawn. Let's put together some sky impressions as we keep looking up, looking around, and just get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.